Dotnet Rocks, episode 1062, with guest Scott Ford. Recorded Friday, October 31st, 2014. Welcome back to Dotnet Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. I'm Carl Franklin. And I'm Richard Campbell. Here we are again, show 1062. Just about got this thing figured out, my friend. Yeah, just about. <laughs> uh, you're a Kickstarter hound, aren't you? Uh, yeah, and Indiegogo. I, I like the crowdsourcing. What can I tell you? I have boxes of gadgets all over the house now because of that. And, you you know, you, you can detect when something is possible scientifically or is pushing the limits. Right? I'm cynical, yes. You're a bit cynical, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to hear what your opinion is of my Better Know framework, which is a Kickstarter project today. Roll the music. Awesome. All right. Lay it on me. It's Bleen. Bleen? B-L-E-E-N dot com. Or go to Indiegogo, not Kickstarter. And look for Bleen. Bleen, huh? Bleen. 3D without glasses. This is a holographic projector, kids. Wow. The videos look good. They're obviously touched. Videos. Yeah, they're touched up. They're what we think it should be. They want to raise $225,000. It ends December 20th. They've made 22793 So, but if you look at the video, I'm just going to give you a second, Richard, to play the video. Yeah. And we'll cut out this time. So, go. All right. All right. What do you think? Well, clearly the video is something out of Iron Man. Yep. Right? It's definitely and, I mean, touched up. Well, not just touched up. I mean, the, I don't think the device exists at all. Well, it doesn't. But the and, – and they're using the actual device. So, they, they've just sort of fabricated this the video. So, don't count too heavily on that. And, they, and what I find interesting is they deliberately went after extremely difficult scenes, like projecting outside. Yeah. You know, like, that's – really hard to do yeah. with any kind of projector with any kind of projector right so it's uh it's interesting for $225 it's hard to be unhappy mm-hmm. right like it's just not that much money per mm-hmm. se i mean supposedly these things the problem is that if it's really going to be an $800 retail product you're coming to coming in low like they're not raising enough money to manufacture these things though. right like that this seems kind of of nutty really and it's and it's only 2 months away oh, from Raising two hundred. I'm reading this wrong. It's four hundred dollars. You put down two twenty five now, and when it's time to ship, you put down an additional one seventy five. Yeah. So it's actually four hundred dollars. So that's yeah. a little more dear. Yeah. Which is, however, they've uh, they don't have very much more time to go. I mean, they only started ten days ago. Yeah, and, and they're they, running till December, so they still have a month and a half to go. Yeah. 51 days left. As of this recording, anyway. Right. And at, with 10% raised. Mm. That's not a good trajectory. No, it's not. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you're right. It's right on the edge of what's believable. And they, you know, they seem to have a lot of lab coat guys walking around explaining stuff. And, you know, it's very, it looks very sciencey, but it looks also very science fiction y. Yeah. Well, you know, most things are. Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. It's interesting. I I just considering how hard it is to make a little more mundane technology delivered on time in these forms, which is a, what what my most biggest experience with crowdsourcing projects is that most people find out it's harder to make stuff than you thought, right? And that's fine, you know, yeah. that's the way that is. But uh, yeah, that's an interesting find, my friend. It that's, is, isn't it? It's something like, that's I'm, for sure. I'm, I'm not sure if I want to throw money into it. I mean, I guess if I'm that cynical about it failing, I guess it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, and in theory, even if it does fail, you know, you're only out 225 bucks, right? There's nothing, no guarantees here. It's only supposed to go. So if you're willing to risk 225 well, that's if, if it makes its goal and then fails, right? But if they don't make their goal, you're not out anything. Oh, no. Um, if they don't raise enough money. Yeah, yeah that's right. But I, I don't know that $225,000 doesn't seem like a big raise, mm. to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, okay. That's what I got. Check it out. Enjoy the video anyway. It is, it is entertaining, and it's nice to think about a device like that. It's science fiction. Yeah. And maybe they can make it science fact. I, I wish them all the best of luck. Me too. Me too. Good find. All right. Who's talking to us, Richard? 
Well, since we're doing a Brownfield show, I thought we should pull a comment from the Greenfield show, which was 1049, the <laughs> okay. show we did with Jeffrey Palermo when we were at uh, in Service Bus Conf. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about Greenfield projects. And actually, uh, some great comments on the show. I'm going to read one of them here. Uh, Philip DeBecco said, uh, this is a great episode, and it resonated with me a lot. Some time ago, I noticed that there are people out there that are good at Brownfield and people who are good at Greenfield development. The main difference, in my opinion, is an ability to deal with uncertainty and vagueness. In Greenfield, no matter how attractive it sounds to people to start anew, there are a lot of decisions to make and there are a lot of unknowns. Many developers, and actually I think most developers, just don't want this headache. Yeah. You know, Greenfield's got that grass is greener syndrome, but and Jeff embraces that actually making a plan when there's nothing is really hard. Another thing that ran a bell with me was the distinction between solution and software architects and the requirements for a solution architect. I happen to work with a solution architect who tries to fill both roles, and moreover, all his working experience is coming from a single company working on the same project for almost 20 years. Hmm. You know, at some point, if you're doing the same thing for 20 years, do you really have 20 years experience or you've just repeated one year of experience 20 times? Yep. That's this a good episode has just put words to my feelings. That's a nice thing to say. I guess we I articulated agree. something for Philip there. Yeah. Hey, Philip, thanks so much for your comment. Uh, I'm I'm with you that these these are interesting problems, and uh, definitely figuring out what style of development you like best is a way to go. And some people want new projects all the time, and some people dread that. They they like to m- take and own something and make it better and better and better over time. Uh, and they're both, both techniques are valuable and we're certainly going to talk about both of them. So a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or in any of our mobile apps because we've got them for Android, Windows 8, iOS, and Windows Phone 7 and 8. Oh yeah, we got them. And that brings us to our guest today. Scott Ford is the founder and chief code whisperer at Corgi Bytes, a software consultancy whose mission is to maintain and improve the world's existing code bases. Scott specializes and thrives on breathing new life into existing projects. Oh, yeah. Thanks. (laughs) Scott, it's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, not everybody likes that job. Um, In fact, I would go so far as to say most programmers abhor that job, taking over other people's work. That's what I've been finding, too. Yeah. Yeah. uh, I've been been giving a talk um, for the last couple months. And um, the first thing I do when I give it is like take it, ask for a show of hands for how many people like actually like working on, on legacy projects. And I, out of like maybe forty people, I'll get like three hands. So, right. Yeah. Yeah, we were we were I think we were talking to Jeff Palermo and uh, the the realization that hey, if you're one of these guys that likes to maintain code, you're valuable, just because it uh, you know there aren't so many people that do that, and. Um, and I think that if you can make sense of what other people have written and take it to the next level, man, that's a that's a very valuable person. I I enjoy doing it, <clears throat> so I, I I I find it a lot of fun. So yeah, have you found that have have you found that your uh, talents have been really valued? I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I have. I have the um, but it's not valued everywhere. So it's like. It's definitely not valued on like a startup who's trying to get something off the ground really, really quickly. Sure. Cause, cause at that point, you know, like I feel like my skill is more in like producing something, you know, making something that exists more beautiful. Right. Right. And, and I really like, I really take a lot of time and attention to producing something that's like really, really nice. And on a, on a startup and it's super young phases, that's a waste of time. Right. Like you, you need to, you need to first prove that somebody's going to be willing to pay for something bef- before you should take the, the time and attention to make it beautiful. So, so I, I feel like there's definitely different, different phases in a, in a business's life or an app's life where it, it makes absolutely no sense to actually spend, you know, to invest energy in improving what you've got. I think it's the developer's first instinct to look at somebody else's code and go, ugh. Mostly yes. because we don't understand it, and it takes us a long time to understand what they were doing in their frame of mind. Do you think? I mean, it's not that everybody else's code is ugly and your baby is the, the cutest one. I don't think it's that. It's just that it takes time to figure out how they were thinking through things through, right? 
It does. I, I think it takes time. It also takes, I think it takes a degree of empathy as well. Um, yes. you know, trying to imagine the, um, constraints that person was, was faced with. So were they on a super tight deadline? You know, did they not have as much experience as you do? Did right. they, um, you know, were they, were they working, you know, five, 10 years ago when a complete set of design patterns or a complete different set of solutions was considered best practice? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it may have been like really, really beautiful at the time, but now you're looking back on it with hindsight, hindsight, and it just looks ugly. That's, I feel that way about my own code. Yeah. <laughs> I, I run into that all the time too. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe this has nothing to do with looking at somebody else's code. This is about looking at code. Code. Looking at code sucks. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I had someone mention the other day that, you know, like if you look at, if you look at literature, in, in literature, we have like these beautiful examples that we hold up of like great pieces of literature that, you know, people, people read and consume and study. We don't really seem to have something like that in the software world. Mm-hmm. Where you know these like these existing works that we 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 look at to see what what is it about them that makes them good, and and, and really study that and try to replicate that. That's an interesting point, uh, Scott. We we rarely ever we routinely take the works of Shakespeare apart and study them letter for letter. You know they, that if you're an English major anyway, but right? When's the last time we held up a piece of code as reference? And said, now let's go through this and, and, and appreciate the insight that's in it. Yeah, and I think, I think it also goes back to the way, the way we teach software development. The mo- most coursework, that, at least that I've come across, doesn't really take you know, something that exists and teaches you how to, how to make changes to it. Mm-hmm. It's you know, taking a blank canvas, taking an empty text file, and transforming that into something new. And at the same time, like especially early in my career, almost all of my first jobs were here's an existing system, here's the lowest priority bugs, go fix them. Mm-hmm. Right. Which was just like it seemed like a huge culture shock at the time. Right. And they started you with low priority bugs, not high priority bugs. Right. <laughs> it's like don't work on anything important. Here, work on small things. Break right. stuff and that I, doesn't matter. Yeah, and I, I think that's an acknowledgement of just the the reality that it, it can it can take time to get the design of a system into your head. Yes. Yeah, it, it, it's hard to kind of build that mental model. And I, I'm, you know, I, I referenced uh, Jeff Palermo's show on Greenfield because I do get the sense that for the development community, Greenfield is for the experts, for the most experienced. The you know that's a reward project, and maintenance is punishment. Yep, we often give maintenance to the to the to the intern. <laughs> I mean, not me. I don't have an intern, but I'm saying <laughs> I see that a lot. The junior developers get the maintenance. Yeah, and I feel like the the I, I feel like a re- part of the reason for that is that it's 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 relatively safe, right? Like there, a lot of those hard decisions have been made, right? And the you know, I feel like some of the important lessons of the learning the pain of certain constraints you can really only learn in that context, right? And, and as you said right off the bat there, and getting experience in the domain, like learning mm-hmm. the code base, learning how we build things, learning what's important, because software is a reflection of what's important in the business. Right. You know, they find that in code. You don't find that on blank screen. Yep. Do you, do you find it's hard to resist the urge to say, I'm going to start over? You know, in other words, take a, a brand new project and then pick and choose the pieces from it. Uh, from the brownfield application uh, rather than just try to work with the application as it is yeah the 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 way I see that often most often play out is instead of um, instead of like kind of breaking up what exists and replacing it um, what I'll more often do if I if I find this kind of urge or this desire to to replace pieces because maybe it's just the risk of touching it is really high Mm -hmm. and I'm the business owner is more concerned about me introducing a new bug than they are with getting an old one fixed or yeah. with, you know, adding a new feature. So it, it kind of comes down to risk tolerance there. Mm-hmm. But the way I usually like to, to replace those is to try to stand up, uh, stand up a, a, another app in parallel and slowly flip features over one at a time. It's really easy on a web app to do it by URL endpoint. So you can say, you know, you can have a proxy that sits in front of both web apps and, you know, 
for a given URL, like say like forward slash admin, forward slash admin goes to the new app, but everything else goes to the old one. Right. And, you know, and that's, that's really easy to roll out and deploy over time. And then you also have the built-in fallback of if you, if you broke something, you can just fall back to the old app. Yeah. So that's a, you know, that, that's an approach that's, that I usually take when it comes to, comes to replacement is to do this like slow and steady replacement instead of this like all at once replacement. Cause those right. make me, those make me really nervous. Um, well, uh, you know, part of this is just exercising the plumbing. Can you compile and run an app without mm-hmm. any changes? Yep. You make a new version and it still works. Yep. And, and how many times, you know, especially when you're coming in blind or coming into a new project and all, you can't. Plumbing doesn't it, work. It, that happens. That, that definitely happens. Or you, you end up in a situation where, um, you know, you can't get access to the dependencies because you don't have a license. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, or it's just been yep. lost. Yep. Yep. Or, you know, you've got, um, you don't have really good uh, configuration management. So you have source code and you've got a deployed binary, but you have no way to match the version of the source code that produced that binary. Right. Mm-hmm. If that happens too. I um, mean, in those situations, I mean, it's really, um, you know, your, your options do become quickly limited. So, you know, re- replacing probably is the, you know, one of the more safe, one of the safer things to do in that context. But I got to think taking over a project isn't the first goal getting a buildable app. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And if there's, if it has a test suite, getting those tests to run, that's another, you know, big important one. You, you know, I always, I always try to do some form of static analysis, just to right. kind of get a, a sense of the health. If it has a test suite, how much of it is passing? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those are, those are all important considerations when, when first getting started. Yeah, just getting your handle around that. Mm-hmm. So how do you start, given you've got a working compile, now you time to learn the code base. Where do you start? I'd like to start with a problem that needs solving. Right. So either, because I don't, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of cleanup just for cleanup's sake. Um, right. I, I'd like to, I'd like there to be some goal in mind for, and it, well, it doesn't necessarily have to, have to be a new feature or a bug that's getting fixed either. It could be that the goal is that the dev team needs to be able to add features more efficiently. Right. Or that the, the dev team needs to be able to make changes to a certain area of the, of the design without introducing bugs. Mm-hmm. So again, you, you've got a very specific goal in mind. And it's, you, know, you can then kind of measure your, your progress towards that goal. So that, that's, that's what I like to do is start with you know, something along those lines. And, and you start in that area and start working towards improving that problem. And I got to think, you know, once you've got to a place where you can now, you own the compilation process, can build a new version of the app even without changes, like you're in a pretty good place. And it says something about the app, like the app's important enough for you to relearn it. It does something useful already. You just need mm-hmm. to know what that is. And it's valuable. You know, we complaining, we talk about this whole Greenfield thing. It's like, you've already proven value. If somebody's poured money into this app and continues to use it up, they want somebody to maintain it. Like that represents a, a bunch of money. Yeah. 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 And they, and they're, they're likely pouring more money into it because they want it to do, they want it to do more. You know, it's, it's not, I don't, I find that it's, I've, I haven't really gotten contacted because somebody just, you know, they want to have what they have be prettier. It's, it's usually they, they want to add a feature to it or they want, they want it to support a new business process or, you know, they want to move it on. They want to be able to support more users with it. Yes. Yeah. They want more from it. I got, I've mm-hmm. been a performance tuner for a long time. And in the, in the end, I always lead my conversations off with, or in the beginning, I leave my conversation off. Well, congratulations, you have a good problem. Because if nobody was using your app, it would work great. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah the fact that there's, there's a whole bunch known by the time you're doing this job. That, yes, this is valuable. Yes, more needs to be done in it. We just got to make sure we're doing the right things the right way. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's a lot of value there in having having those things figured out. and And sometimes those also place constraints. And and I feel like it's those constraints that can be really really frustrating for people who are working on you know brownfield projects. Sure, is well, not because you can't you can't change those. Those are like invariants to the problem. We're not just, switching languages, mm-hmm. right? Right. Or you know, and you, I find it happens in conversations that start with it would be it would be so much easier if I could just and and dot 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 and like so many so many frustrations on the team get poured out in that in the sentence that starts that way. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, 
if we could just change the database, if we could just, um, you know, if we could just switch languages, you know, this would be, you know, so, so much easier. And, and I don't know that any of those things are true. The only thing I know for sure when you do a major switch like that is everybody's going to leave you alone for a couple of months because <laughs> you're, quote, doing something hard. But it doesn't necessarily mean you made stuff better. You get left alone? <laughs> I, I, find, I find that you usually don't get left alone when you're doing something like that. Yeah? Then they're <laughs> yeah. all over you? Well, yeah, because, I mean, the, the, the business still wants, you know, most businesses that I've, I've worked with, they, 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 they still want more out of what they've got. Right. So even if you are, even if you have, even if you've decided that uh, you know, replacement is the, is the best way to go or, or you right. know, re-architecting and, and you're taking on some of those big challenges that taking on one of those really hard problems is, is the best choice that, you know, they really can't wait. They've still got bugs that are being reported. They still have, you know, market challenges that they're trying to solve. You know, those things that, you know, the, the world doesn't, you can't hit pause on the world while you go solve those problems. Yeah. Well, and, and, but your excuse is always, Hey, we're, re- we're not, we're not going to fix that bug. We're going to rewrite over here and it, that bug won't exist anymore. There'll be a bunch of other ones, but you know, that one will go away. Right. Right. That it, and, and I don't, I don't, I've almost never found that to actually be a better answer in the long run, but fixing code bases isn't easy either. You know, the, the, the fragility of, of existing code is what gets you. I guess I started bringing up my next question, which is, isn't the, isn't the correct way to start to, to start building tests so that you actually can understand the software and know when you make a change, what it's going to do. Yeah. That, I think of, I think of like a test suite as kind of a conversation that like, as I'm writing one, I think of it as a conversation with the system. It's mm-hmm. like, Hey system, do you do this? And then I get back a yes or a no. Mm-hmm. And then that's knowledge I now have about how the system works. So, you know, anytime I'm wondering, you know, how does this, like, if I look at, if I'm looking at a block of code, I'm like, what does this do? I try, <laughs> I try, it's so different I try. than like exploring a machine, right? You're looking at that knob and going, what does this do? Yeah. Right. Right. I try to write a test to, to, to discover that. And it could be a test that I toss and throw away, or it right. could be one that I decide to keep. Um, but I, I do just write a, a, you know, a quick little test to try to figure that out. Like, like, how does this behave when I pass in null? You know, right. like, did, did they think about that here? Right. You know, so, so, um, I, I can imagine it's almost like opening someone else's fridge, you know? You're just wondering what the hell you're looking at and what was that at one point, you know, or what was going through the mind. And I, I mean, at what point do you see something that's clearly like spaghetti code, poorly written stuff that you just like, it goes against everything in your nature to want to just fix it and instead, you know, just take it and redo it. I mean, I guess that's what I, my, my main question is here is like, how do you, do you need to fight that urge constantly? Or is that the right thing to do? I mean, at what point do you say, nope, you know what, this particular thing has to be done in a new class, and I'm going to fix that? Yeah, I think because of my bias, I have the opposite problem, where mm-hmm. my my bias is to try to fix first. Whereas other developers, their their bias is to replace first. That's probably why so, you do what you do. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. So I have I, I feel like I constantly have to keep myself in check to say, you know, does it make the most sense for my client for me to replace this or fix it? Yeah. And and just, just kind of be really honest about that. Um I like to 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 try to think about think about it in terms of I can I can kind of imagine a Venn diagram of the feature set that the code has that I'm looking at, so say it's a function, say it's a class, whatever the unit that I'm currently interested in is, what what features does it provide? And then what features do I need? How much of an overlap is there between those two sets? If there's not much at all or none at all, then it's clearly a replacement candidate. Right. And, you know, there's just, there's no question about it. I don't need anything that it does or I need very little of what it does. If the overlap is really, really high, then I, then I, I feel it's most prudent to improve it. The where it gets tricky is kind of in the middle, right? The where it's less clear which which path is better. Which I got to think is most of the time. Like rarely right. are we certain of any of these things. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's 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 also you know, I it's it can also be difficult to to look at a block of code and actually be able to determine everything it pro- it's providing for you too. So, uh, you know, especially in some of these like spaghetti projects, right. The, my my favorite metric to to look at when I'm doing static analysis is cyclomatic complexity. Sure. And there's a project that um, I'm in the process of getting started rolling this client on, 
but they have they have uh, methods in their system that have cyclomatic complexities of greater than 350. Mm. So, I mean, mm. that's just that's really really huge. It is, and so like that's you know three, four, five hundred line file you know file uh, methods, just tons and tons of conditional logic. Right. So. Well, and, and you know, I found that the the code that's the most valuable tends to be also very hard to test. Like it's complicated. This, you know, I I often go hunting for the secret sauce. What is it that this app does? Right. You know, that's actually valuable, and everything is sort of a preamble and a postamble to this secret sauce moment. Right. Not let alone the sauce that you add yourself, which is, you know, but uh, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Oh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. Time to open the fridge and check out a pile of spaghetti code and stick a fork in it. <laughs> Only then shall we add our secret sauce. Nice. Oh, pasta. <laughs> you knew where we were going there. Yeah. I just couldn't resist. No, good. It's actually time to give away a Sync Fusion Essential Studio to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won today, is your big data strategy causing you headaches? Ditch the compiled configuration and jargon and pump up your development with the only easy-to-use big data solution for Windows. The SyncFusion Big Data Platform installs quickly and is packed with samples to help you get up and running in 15 minutes or less. Check it out now at SyncFusion.com and start working with big data in under 15 minutes. And even if you aren't working with big data, you can take advantage of over 500 SyncFusion controls to help you build stunning applications or... You can broaden your skill set with the free ebooks SyncFusion offers on over 40 topics. Download free trials and free ebooks at SyncFusion.com. Awesome, dude. Yeah. All right, who's our winner? Today's winner is Cedric Conti. Congratulations, Cedric. Golf clap for you, sir. Yeah, golf clap for Cedric. He just won the SyncFusion Essential Studio. And, uh, you know, they have a, a studio for Xamarin now, too. Oh, and, wow. Uh, I'm not sure which one they're giving away, but uh, we'll we'll figure that out in email. Mm-hmm. And, hey, if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we like to give away sponsor stuff. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And we like to ask our guests... Scott, if you had five thousand to spend right now on technology, what would you buy? I've been, uh, I've been, I have my eye on uh, like the new Apple iMac with the Retina display. Oh, with a super uh, Retina, the five K display. Whew! I thought you were going to say Bleens. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, no Bleens, no Bleens. Um, but yeah, I, I went to their site and I, I, I tricked one out the way that I would, I would really like it, and it came, came to. Just a little over five grand. So, wow. like, uh, yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's good stuff. Yeah, that 5K display makes me think I might need a 5K display. <laughs> <laughs> 5120 by 2880. Yeah. That's a lot of screen space. A lot of screen. Oh, yeah. Because the correct amount of monitor is more. <laughs> And I've gotten I've gotten really really spoiled writing code on a you know with a high DPI uh, display. It is it just it's so much prettier. Uh, I've done I've been working on a sixteen hundred high screen for a few years now because there's more lines of code. So I've always watched for can I get more height out of the screen and still read it. Like the some of these four K displays that are out there these days that are twenty eight inches, like you can't run them in full res and still read the code. It's microscopic. It kind of defeats the purpose. You need, and as soon as you go to the bigger display, like a thirty-two or a thirty-four, it's a three thousand dollars monitor. Yeah, yeah. I usually run at a relatively high size font, so I get nice, uh, nice, beautifully rendered glyphs. As long as you can read them, and yeah. But I'm <laughs> with you. More code, better. We're getting old. <laughs> this that too hard to read these damn things. Sometimes <laughs> we have to put our faces right up to the screen. <laughs> Who would do that? Who would do that? <laughs> <laughs> so what else can you tell us about uh you know how how does one resist the urge to re- constantly refactor and stroke our own egos i mean it sounds like you really really enjoy the puzzle of getting inside the programmer's brain and trying to think like them and then try to outthink them at their own brain yeah it's it's almost like uh like an archaeology or anthropology puzzle it's you know trying to figure ah. out the you know 
because all I have is is what they left behind, right? I, right. Um, and That's so it's a great kind of like, analogy. Yeah, it, it's kind of like an archaeological dig where all I have is the pottery, and and from that I have to figure out what they're eating for breakfast. So yeah. you know, it's. <laughs> it's <laughs> um, <laughs> so or like you know, or how much money they made a year, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Like it, you know, it's. Uh, like it's it's really that kind of problem because all you have is this you have the result of their hard work and you don't really have a lot of the decisions that went into it and it, are you usually dealing with the team is gone there's nobody to ask most often it's it's the team is gone there's nobody to ask or the or you often have where the you will have the per, you'll have someone there who was there when the decision was made but they don't remember right yeah. this is a long time ago mhm so it's like oh i I remember there being a reason for that, but I don't know what it is. Like that, I feel like that's often the 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 response whenever I ask a ask a question about why something was designed a certain way. Yeah. The uh, and yeah, inevitably battle. Are you a fan of uh, Michael Feathers working effectively with legacy code? Yeah, I I love that book. Um, I you know that that book really transformed the way that I I approached my craft. The uh, the only thing I didn't like about it was I felt like legacy was this like really negative term. Yeah, yeah. And I've been I've been kind of fighting that. And the one of the things that I've been working into my talk that I've been giving the last few months is that I feel we need more positive ways to talk about this kind of work in our mm-hmm. in our industry. Mm-hmm. If you look at the terminology we use, we have legacy brownfield. That doesn't sound all that no, enticing. <laughs> you know, refactoring isn't really is kind of like doesn't really have a negative or positive connotation within the industry, but it's kind of negative because no one outside of it knows what it means. So, you know, we, we don't really have a lot of really, you know, polite and really like encouraging ways to talk about, you know, working with something that's, that exists. Right. So I've, I've been trying to borrow from, uh, you know, the construction industry and, you know, with kind of the physical space that works with, you know, things that already exist and, and, and improving them. And some of the terms we use there are remodeling, revitalizing, restoration, and those are those are much more positive, you know, discussions. Um, so, you know, you don't. I feel like I don't. You could. You could. I've heard about people talking like being really proud about um, the fact that they they restored a '67 Chevy, but I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that they like they're really happy that they bought a legacy house. Yeah, so, that's true. Um, but was, you, <laughs> I know well-built houses, even when they're older, are well-built. I think about uh, Scott Stanfield's Victorian place is an amazing house. Oh, but, yeah. But, and I, and I even get to feel that way. Like, the guys who, down at the Computer muse- History Museum down in Palo Alto, who got that PDP-11 running, yeah. there's your 67 Chevy. Yep. You know, like, the but vintage hardware. But it's very hard to get old electrons can't be shined well and you know software has this freshness to it uh this attribute that we put on that's completely constructed in our brains right i mean think about how often operating systems upgrade websites upgrade and if you don't keep changing it and evolving it it doesn't seem fresh and it seems like oh you know people like wrinkle their nose when you're using something that you've been using the same way for for 10 years it, and it's a very interesting psychological phenomenon that happens in our industry. Software is disposable, you know, it's, uh, it gets old, it smells. You know, we have that, those terms for code, yeah. code smell, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, and we don't usually, funky. we don't usually use it because we mean it smells nice. It's, no. it's it, the discussion is, is not that, oh, that's, that's, that's got a nice, I like that, you know, it's, right. it's, no, this is, this stinks. It's, yeah, it right. stinks. <laughs> and especially if someone else did it. Oh, yeah, that really stinks. No, mine doesn't stink. No, no, no. Exactly. <laughs> it's just fascinating, you know, the that I really love the way you approach this as sort of like Sherlock Holmes, you know, you're you're investigating something that happened and trying to construct a picture, a mental model of what's going on. Now, I would find that to be a a real challenge. And uh, I like I would say like I say I would be constantly resisting the urge to you know to to redo. Yeah, mm. yeah, and and so I mean that's the what I've been trying to do is trying to find people who are really enjoy building things from scratch because there is a huge need for that. Right. But they and they don't really for for them it's not exciting anymore when it's done. They want to move on to the next new fresh idea, 
and then get them to pass it off to me because I enjoy taking something that someone else has created mm-hmm. and, and keeping it going. Well, I'll tell you, so. you, you, you guys are rare and, uh, I would like to encourage other people to follow in your footsteps because we're talking job security here, kids. <laughs> well, and I, I mean, I'll appreciate the known value, right? But then, you know, like you can't performance tune before you built the app. You got to sort of get the app out there, see how people use it to know what to tune. Yep. This feels like the same thing. You'll know what features to work on because you know where people are finding value in the app. Mm-hmm. It's just a question of how hard it is to actually be able to start adding that additional value to it given the implications of the existing code base. Well, and sometimes your architecture requires that you move off of whatever platform it is and into something else, right? I mean, there's got to be times where, like, maybe you're looking at an old VB6 DLL or something like that, and now you want to access that code on the web. Well, those things are ActiveX apartment threaded, and they don't play well in web servers. And, you know, there must be a a point at which you say, well, we're going to have to move this because of the technological requirements. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, I try to... Like if I do have the source, that it try to preserve, you try to prefer, preserve as much of that logic as possible. Right. When doing a port like that, so then that way it's not just a, you know, okay, we're going to throw everything away. Yeah. So, but but yeah, that I feel like that's the most the most common, um, you know, reason I see for apps getting rewritten is, well, our deployed environment isn't supported anymore. Right. Um, and you know the version we and our binary won't deploy into a new environment without right. without some changes. So. Yeah, the question of how broken are you? Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the need to go to the web, I think that's sort of the old need too. That's been a few years. The yeah. need to get to mobile. Need to get to mobile is even better. Yeah. Yeah. That's, the, that, that's the new boogeyman. Yeah. And, and a lot of legacy code bases are pretty resistant to getting to mobile. Yeah, or getting across platform mobile. So mm-hmm. you, you could have, you can have an app that you've built for one platform, for one mobile platform and it's really successful. And now you want to tap into a new marketplace. And that's in a completely different framework and a completely different language. And so, you know, so now what do you do? Do you write it? Do you write the same app again? Do you try to, you know, like you, if you wrote it in a, a tool set that's specific for that platform, you, you now, you've, you've got some, some pain. You've got to try to figure out how to solve. Right. What was the hairiest, smelliest, nastiest code you had to, uh, had to inherit? And you don't have to name names. I'm just saying, you know, what did it do? What was it? What did it look like? So probably not the one that I've had to inherit, but one that like I had I had coworkers like years ago that they were they were hired to do a review of, and it was a um, it was this old application. It was like a couple hundred thousand lines, but mm-hmm. only four files. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, mm. <laughs> yeah, mm. and I think like ninety percent of that code was actually in one of the files. Ooh, um, the That's cyclomatic. Insane. Yeah, the cyclomatic complexity score of some of the functions was um, was well into the thousands. Oh my! Um, You're almost the, proud of that at that point. How high can we get this number? Exactly. Yeah, and then the one of the one of the members of of the code view team he had taken he took the he took one of those functions and he deleted everything that wasn't flow control, and then printed it out just to see if he could start get his head getting his head around what it does. And he had like a, a sheet of a sheet of like landscape paper like 50 60 <laughs> uh 50 60 pages and it was just flow control like oh. no you know nothing else uh, yeah that that team had the, the the developers had a they were afraid of dynamic memory wow for for this particular problem so they they um uh, they defined everything they would ever need on the stack so wow. like if they if they so they they def- they find that their system could handle like 20 widgets and so they allocated they pre-allocated space for 20 widgets um so that so they wouldn't have to do it at runtime uh jeez yeah so it was it was definitely it had it had its challenges and there the the team's reasoning for why they only had four files was that their uh, their source control system made it too difficult to add new files (laughs) it was it was it was easier for them to modify the existing ones oh wow so yeah so that's probably the worst one i've ever heard of i didn't i didn't actually inherit that um, but that's probably that. That's what I hold up to be like the the worst. Has so, that's a ghost story. Has there, that's the ghost story. Yeah. <laughs> has there been anything that was just architecturally wacky? In other words, you know, I I can't believe you guys did it like that. You know, there's so many easier ways to to do something. 
Well, I, I, I run into architecturally wacky by design a lot of times. So like right. I just, I just finished implementing a, um, a connection to a remote system where the bus is, uh, an FTP server. So, okay. I mean, we're, we're like, we're communicating by dropping files into, uh, an, a file system and then waiting for them to disappear as the signal that they were consumed. And then a response file is dropped into a different directory. Oh my. Um, to, with the, with the results of the, the other end of the communication. So it's like, it's, it's literally turning a you know, file system into a communication bus. Should actually, that was one step up from the fax and scan system that you had before. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, and like, I've, I've seen that done a couple of times now though. It's just, which is, I think is, is more frightening is that it, 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 it might actually be a pattern. Um, Huh. So, but yeah, that's, that's, that's a really, I feel like it's a really weird way to integrate two systems is to do it via the file system. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, MSMQ message buses, the messaging systems often have, you know, disk as where the messages actually go, but they have a bunch of APIs. So you don't have to look at that. Right. Right. It's okay if that's how it manages its internal state. Right. Um, I think I talked about this before, but there was a, a project that somebody um, gave me you know, out of the kindness of their heart that they had been working on and decided, ah, we'll let Carl deal with that. I think I told this story before. But it was essentially an access-like thing where you just loaded up thousands of and thousands of records and then started slicing them and dicing them and doing all sorts of stuff. And this was the end users that were doing this, sort of, you know, on-the-fly querying, but being able to see everything. It looked just like, you know, access, essentially. And they wanted to move that to the web, but they wanted to keep the architecture exactly the same. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I had a, a very hard time uh, trying to explain the issues there, uh, but the guy wouldn't have it. And so I said, okay, I'm out. <laughs> yep. It's already perfect. Why would we worry? Yeah. <laughs> and that that was before the days of Ajax even. So you, you couldn't even sort of limit what you were looking at and dynamically load a view at a time, which I could even see happening. But uh, it was before any of that stuff too. It was a long time ago. Wow. Oh, well. I didn't mean to derail your conversation, but... No, you're fine. Yeah. Those, uh, I'm really interested in the challenges that you've had Um you know, the, 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 the real challenges for you, cause it sounds like you're really into this idea, uh, and you're really good at it, but I want to find out what, you know, what breaks Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Some, a lot of, so what breaks me most often is the, this scenario where I see something and I feel like I can do a better job. Like, okay, like, okay, like that's, that, that solution is less than ideal and I'll start incrementally improving it, incrementally refactoring. And then I realize I'm right back to where they started. Um, and that is, it's like, like, oh, this is probably the optimal solution. And, and I just, you know, I just spent however many hours figuring that out when, if I just trusted. Uh, so that, that's, that's what, that's really disheartening is this idea that you feel like you can make an improvement to it and then you get into it and then realize you can't. It's like, it's like, no, it's already, it's already best. It just it doesn't look like it, but it is. Right. Yeah, just because it's not shiny on the outside doesn't mean it couldn't be shiny on the inside. Right. You know, just yeah, I've I've met some amazing code that was just command line stuff. You know, it ran beautifully, but because it wasn't shiny at all, nobody liked it. Mm -hmm. it, it did the job really, really well. And you sat when you really studied it and looked at it, you went, "I don't think we could make this better. I could make it shinier, yeah, but it, would <laughs> it actually be faster? No, it'd probably make it slower." It has a minimal UI for a reason. Right. Yeah, the, the other thing that I find as a challenge is knowing what documentation to trust on a project. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but I would think almost none. The only thing more legacy than the code is the is the docs. Or especially I, if they're not linked in some way or if they're not dated and you don't know what's been updated. Right. Yeah. So the I think I find that especially documentation that describes what's happening. I try right. to just ignore like that's big useless. Lie. The yeah, big lie because the the code is really the only going to be the only source for for what. I I often will like to try to glean why from from document from words that have been written down in English, and and try to get an understanding for like okay like get a hint for like why a decision was made, 
And that can often be helpful. But, you know, using, but I don't I really, really get frustrated if I try to rely on, uh, or if I end up finding I was actually relying on a, a description that someone had written down about what the system was doing and only to discover that it was false. Like that, that is incredibly frustrating. Yeah. Now, you, you going down the wrong path is always, you know, you're always under time pressure here. They wouldn't have brought you in if it wasn't urgent. So trying to, trying to get it to a place where it's not, where, where you're actually making progress and working on the right thing. Yeah. And at the same time, I try to, I try to limit the, the level of urgency that I, that I get brought on for. Um, the, like going back to the, the analogy of a house. So if your basement's flooding because a pipe's burst, you need someone to fix that like right now. Yeah, like right. there's, you know, like that's, that's something that needs to be, needs to be stopped immediately. That's not really the kind of problem I'm interested in working on, on, on a, on a software project. Like, right. cause to me that like that involves like phone calls in the middle of the night or, you know, on the weekends. That's and, QFE, quick fix engineering. Yeah. And I, 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 I value my time and my quality of life too much to, to really kind of put myself in that scenario. However, I would really enjoy, you know, um, taking a structure that had been flooded in its basement from that and bringing it, you know, making sure it can still exist. Mm -hmm. right. So, so it's, it's still, it's still urgent, but it's not like, it's not an absolute emergency, right? Like it's not, it's not, it has to be done tomorrow. It's, you know, it's, it's more important that it's more important that it gets done right than it is that it gets done fast. Right. And it still needs to be done relatively quickly mm -hmm. because, you know, time is money and you don't want to waste your, your client's resources. Yeah, and it just takes a little, yeah, and you still need some time. You pretty much stick to the .NET stack, like you're just dealing with C Sharp? Um, so we have been focused, so as a, as a business, our strategy is to focus on any language, any platform, any framework is is kind of our motto. The All of our clients right now are Ruby on Rails, though. So we, uh, we don't have any .NET clients at the moment. Right. So, so but I have been discovering that, you know, a lot of, like in talking to uh, like I gave a talk at .NET users group a few weeks ago that there's a lot of interest in the .NET community to you know having people who 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 will keep keep code alive. Yeah, well without a doubt. I mean it's it's a big chunk of the job too. We you know the .NET platform is a mature platform. There's a lot of code out there providing value. It just needs to be maintained and improved. Yeah. Yeah, and mm -hmm. I have I have extensive experience working with .NET 1.0 th through 3.5. So I feel like I'm in a great place to inherit those projects that people might not want to touch anymore. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great part of that. Isn't a big incentive when you're dealing with stuff like 1.10, 1.1 code is get it to the current generation of the framework? I so I, I think there's there's a lot of value in that. It, well there there can't there's a lot of value and there's a lot of risk. So um what I think is is more important to do really quickly is to upgrade your your the framework you're using for testing. Mm-hmm. And to make sure that, that you're using you're using the latest tools to test what you've got, and figure out how to do that. Um, because, like again, going back to the analogy of a house, if I bought a house in the 1920s, I wouldn't limit myself to working on it with only tools that were available in the 1920s. Right. I would try to use tools that were, you know, that I could go get that were readily available right now. Well, especially we talk about testing tools. Life's dramatically better than it was in the earlier version. Oh yeah, like drastically better. Like you know, yeah. testing, continuous integration. There, there, you know, been so many huge improvements. And so I think you know, getting start starting with those, you know, parts of the project and getting those to be upgraded to to more recent versions is really really critical. Mm -hmm. And then I think once you have once you have that in place, then you can start looking at improving, you know, the 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 other underlying dependencies and seeing how many of those you can upgrade and how many of those you can do safely. Well, and I guess a part of this is just trying to figure out what the low-hanging fruit is for delivering on the main goals. And my most common complaint when I'm dealing with brownfield apps is they're too slow. Granted, I'm a performance specialist, so duh. But <laughs> off, you'd be surprised how big a win I get taking a web app that's running on 2.0 framework and getting it up to 4.5 and moving oh. it on to IIS 8. Like, so we've not changed any code other than to fix what was necessary to run on the current generation stuff. And we're substantially faster. And so we, we've gone through the testing process and built enough testing harness that we can be sure the app is still going to work, that we can actually validate, yes, it works, yes, it, no, it doesn't. Then start making those types of upgrades and testing again. 
You make you're already somewhere and you haven't actually dove into the code base yet. Yeah, I, I imagine that would be that would be huge because almost every every release from you know working on a mature framework, you know, Mike, I seriously doubt Microsoft's goal is going to be to put out a new version of the .NET framework that's slower than the previous yeah. version. I mean, that's that's that would be crazy talk. Like, there's almost always performance improvements that get baked in as well. So. Yeah, especially at the kernel level, you know, some of the OS changes that happened in IIS seven and eight, where e- even when I was on the current generation framework, just upgrading the IIS. To, and running on modern hardware, stuff went faster. Like it's, it's impressive what a difference you can make there. Yeah. And I think, you know, changing code feels like the last resort. Right. Do everything else first. Yeah. Sounds fun. I, I would really like to try that just for the, <laughs> just for the sake of just thinking, you know, changing the way I think about programming because it is a different skill than, than greenfield programming. And it takes a certain mindset to get there. Huh. Great stuff, man. Thanks for joining us this hour. Thanks for having me. Awesome, Scott. And keep us, uh, keep us updated on your, on your happenings. Will do. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a